Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, guys. As always, I'm your host, Zach Twomley, and this is the latest installment of the Franco-Dutch War. So you know the deal. This podcast is on Patreon, and it would be really, really awesome if you guys went and checked it out through the usual channels. WDFpodcast.com, click on the banner, or patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Why would you bother doing that? Well, rather recently, I set up a Patreon members feed where basically you can, for $5 a month, get this podcast a week earlier than everyone else without all these bothering slogans and catchphrases and pleas for your aid. On top of this, once we reach our target that is not that far off by now, you'll have an extra hour of content to feast your ears upon every single month. On top of the fact that you're getting this podcast, hey, well, that much earlier too. So that's all nice. As a $5 diplomat, you will also get a series of things posted to your door, None of which are dangerous unless you use them in a certain fashion, in which case it's your fault, don't sue me. Thanks very much. But yeah, I'm investing in a lot of merchandise, as well as, of course, investing my time and energies and considerable brain power in the members' feed, so I hope you guys will check it out. It's a really exciting time to be a history friend and a fan of this podcast, so I feel like the best way to get When Diplomacy Fails Forward is to invest in Patreon. I mean, I even semi-employed, but didn't really employ, kind of just asked my dad to help me with all the shipping because I don't really know what I'm doing and I want to make sure you guys get your stuff in one piece and legally and having paid all the considerable taxes. So yeah, thanks to you guys and your support, my dad is basically the quartermaster of when diplomacy fails. So congratulations to him and to us. Remember, it doesn't take much to avail of all these goodies, guys. Go to wdfpodcast.com, click on the Patreon banner or patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails trust me you won't regret it i'll make sure that you don't and after that small harmless bit of rambling i hope you will really enjoy this latest episode because just like the one that came before it it's a doozy thanks and enjoy Welcome to episode 13, patrons, history friends, listeners all. Thanks for tuning in to When Diplomacy Fells on the next installment of the Franco-Dutch War. Last time we saw the chaotic situation in the Dutch Republic gradually stabilise. But only after Louis XIV of France handed the Dutch peace terms and demands so profoundly insulting that destruction seemed the better option. Through a series of rousing events, the Dutch seemed secure enough in their position to at least endure whatever the French had planned, and some may have hoped that the worst was in fact over. With the conflict in a state of lull, the intriguing began. 
the embassy that Charles II of Britain believed would induce William of Orange to surrender his Dutch home to London, had been sent, and from early July 1672, the Dutch would have to contend not merely with the French soldiery, but also with the British agents led by Buckingham and Arlington. Time would tell if the Republic could outlast either their schemes or those of the French, or indeed, which party posed more danger to the Republic. I will now take you to late June, 1672. It is not surprising that among the many who believe themselves to be engineers, or who claim to be, there are so few who are able and deserving of that title. The profession is great and very noble, but it demands a genius especially made for it, and continuous application throughout many years, something that nature and the vigour of our sieges accord but rarely. Vauban describes his profession. Dutch had taken an immense battering, and by all accounts the country had come close to unravelling, but the initial panic had lessened somewhat in the last week of June. Despite Louis's impressive seizure of Utrecht, which fell on the 30th of June, having been handed over without a siege by a terrified populace, and as French armies waited at Zeist for the Dutch delegation to offer impossible terms, the Dutch in Holland and in some other places managed to use that precious time of a stalled campaign to reinforce their defences. Beholding a growing resistance and intransigence, as the sluices were opened and as the French became bogged down in key areas, Vauban was horrified, as was Pompon, the new foreign minister, who had jointly dealt with Minister for War Louvois in negotiations with the Dutch delegation that had been led by Peter de Groot. Louis' engineer and foreign minister both urged the Sun King to take the initial Dutch offer, such rewards would have achieved all Louis could have hoped for, and would have ended the war before any other power could have made their presence felt. By means of all these places, the king could in wartime readily master Bruges, Ghent, and Antwerp, remarked Vauban, adding that it was critical peace was made now, while Europe is still standing in amazement. That Louis didn't make peace, and that he blithely sent the Dutch away after demanding impossible terms, which included the granting of entire provinces like Utrecht, Overijssel, and Gelderland to France on top of the original offers, today forms one of the most incredible and telling scenes from the period, which many historians point to as the height of folly and arrogance on the part of the Sun King. 
By failing to make peace at this moment, Louis denied France a quick and glorious war, and instead doomed Europe to another five plus years of conflict, with results that would prove far less impressive in the end than if he had simply acceded to peace here. If pride got the better of Louis XIV, Conrad von Buningen had argued that fear and panic had gotten the better of the delegates of the States of Holland when he made his rousing appeal to them in the first week of July. It was not the famous Prince of Orange, but this relatively unknown Dutch diplomat, who was also suspected by historians of being bipolar, on a side note, that gave a much-needed slap and boost to the Holland deputies, though as we'll see, Van Buningen had been massively encouraged himself by the Prince in early July. Peter Gale, in his account of the period, analyses Van Buningen's harsh attack on the deputies, which underlined why the previous efforts at peace with the French had been so wrong-headed in the first place. He wrote, Van Buningen called de Groot's entire mission a terrible mistake. Far more had been promised than it was possible to give. The offer of the Generality lands was bound to alienate the country's only ally, Spain, for the Spanish Netherlands were being placed in an impossible position. Moreover, no such offer should ever have been made without the cooperation of the Prince of Orange. Zealand had been right to protest, and the commonality would rise up in arms. Let France, therefore, try to conquer by force and face the consequences. The Emperor, Spain and the German rulers could not remain indifferent in the face of this aggression, and above all there was the chance that England would break with her French ally. De Groot must not go back, because now he was suspected by the commonality, one can imagine how the rest of the assembly flinched on hearing these fortright remarks. The members had voted in a panic and must now repair the damage. When Van Buningen had gone, the remaining members opined with him, and decided unanimously to break off the negotiations. De Groot would go back to talk with the French, but merely to tell them that their conditions were intolerably severe. The winding tale which leads us to Conrad von Buningen's defiance in the States General began on the 4th of July, 1672, with the arrival of the Earl of Arlington and the Duke of Buckingham arguably Britain's most public political rivals, who were now acting in tandem under the strict orders of their sovereign. Charles had sent these two men to the front lines as he had been mightily embarrassed with Louis's rapid progress and grand conquests, while he had nothing to really show for his role in the alliance. Thus the two figures were tasked with wresting from the Dutch concessions which included the ports of Sluys, Vlissingen and Brielle, and a guarantee that William would acquire a hereditary position in the Republic, as would his heirs. On top of this were the usual demands of respect for England's mastery over the seas, a huge indemnity and advantageous fishing rights, as well as whatever else Charles may decide on at a later date. When these two figures crossed from the French camp into Dutch territory, the States General would already have known these unfavourable terms, because if you remember last time, alongside the ill-fated diplomatic mission to the French, a delegation had also been sent to England around the same time in the middle of June. Though this Dutch delegation in the event couldn't actually get anywhere with negotiations while in London, they were not allowed to return home because it was feared that news of their failure would prompt even greater outrage among the citizenry. This belief was shored up by the still incredible falsehood commonly perpetrated among the Dutch people, that England had their best interest at heart, or that they at least wouldn't demand such sovereignty-restricting concessions as France continued to do. 
This falsehood was taken to near hysterical levels when the English duo of Buckingham and Arlington travelled into Holland to further the negotiations and were immediately met by the Orangist party who warmly welcomed them and informed them of William's victory in achieving the stadtholdership. It was a surreal sight. Here was arguably the statesman most responsible for what had befallen the Republic, from the English side at least. Arlington for his role in the Treaty of Dover, and Buckingham for his role in the later Treaty of London, yet both were wined and dined as they met with the Orangist delegates, and the actual Dutch representatives tried to bring the two men to the bargaining table. All the way to The Hague, an honour guard defended the two men, and shouts of, God bless the King of England and the Prince, and the devil take the states, were heard. The statement was clear, the Regent States Party were to blame for what had occurred, and now the Orangists, led by William and aided by their noble English allies, were here to save the day. The English delegation was stunned and presently surprised by this reception. They had heard of the Dutch divisions, but they were even more intense than they had ever imagined. Arlington and Buckingham must have expected the greatest concessions to be forthcoming from the States General, but as they made their way towards it, they were joined by Conrad von Buningen, in his capacity as representative of the States of Holland. It is tempting to speculate on how Van Buningen felt about the two men by this point, since after all he did spend months in their company, under the impression that England would never pursue the policy it now advocated, and so much at his homeland's expense. He must have had to try hard to hide his contempt for the two men, who for the past few years had consistently lied to his face. His understandable anger towards both may explain their reaction when Van Buningen repeated the now official policy of Holland with respect to concessions, that there would be no handouts, no towns, fortresses or massive indemnities would be given to England, and not even fishing rights were for the moment at least to be considered. Arlington and Buckingham, though they didn't like the content of Van Buningen's spiel, probably chalked his unfavourable attitude down to his past experiences with them and maybe even his pride, but Van Buningen was deadly serious. As they approached the States General, both men held what they believed was their trump card in the backs of their minds. Charles's explicit instructions included the mission to drive a wedge between the Dutch government and Prince William, who it was expected would grant England numerous concessions in return for the position Charles would grant him, and in return for the guarantees to his person that England would ensure France would not endanger. In other words, it was approaching time for Charles to put into motion his plan to appoint William as ruler over the rump state of the Dutch Republic, and the first order of business was to wrest from William a number of pleasing towns and fortresses which England could occupy as thanks for this favour. It was an utterly galling and arrogant position to be in, almost on the same level as Louis XIV, but if we look at the situation objectively, as Charles believed he did, then it did make a bit of sense. The Dutch Republic, in spite of its burgeoning counter-attack, was in dire straits, and its survival was by no means guaranteed if the French broke through in further areas. Though the population were roused, things had been settled with William's appointment, and the regents seemed willing to do what was necessary. These were mostly moral and psychological changes, which weren't clear on the surface, and as usual, Buckingham and Arlington saw only surface issues. It was inevitable, they believed, that William would put his own interest before those of the Republic, and fall in line with the interests of his uncle, as the Anglo-French plans dictated. 
On the night of the 5th of July 1672, these two Englishmen finally had some time alone with William, whom they believed was only a few breaths away from providing the rubber stamp of approval on the entire English war effort. Contrary to the expectations of Buckingham and Arlington, William stood firm, displaying not for the first time his passions, tenacity and patriotism that defined him as a figure and would add to his legend as a national saviour. Before they met with him, Arlington had written home that If the Prince of Orange could be persuaded to send in the Dutch fleet to the Duke of York and deliver up some towns into our hands, it would be in my opinion not only the best way for us, but also the surest way for him to find his account in this business. Yet this business was wholly unsavoury in William's eyes. He saw it not as an opportunity to further his own interests, but as an attack on his homeland. He reproached both Englishmen for aligning England with France, warning that London would suffer in reputation and spirit, as the British people were already in opposition to the war at home. To this, Arlington insisted that the people were behind the war, and that Charles guaranteed William wouldn't lose out in his dynasty's interests, come what may. William replied candidly that Anglo-French victory was by no means certain, and that England had cast herself in the role of the most unfortunate of villains by attacking the Dutch Republic without due reason. William also knew that the overwhelming success of France in the opening phases of the war had caused great consternation in England, and that it appeared as though France would overwhelm the Dutch and then the continent. William said he was authorised by the States General in his new position of Stadtholder to negotiate an association between Britain and the Dutch, and that he expected Charles to pressure Louis to moderate his demands to facilitate this. In reference to the French, William claimed that they, the Dutch, would die a thousand deaths rather than submit to them. Arlington then somewhat meekly replied that England would do its best with Louis, but again repeated the idea that to make our terms go down the more easily, it would be wise to grant London some Dutch towns as a pledge only. William flatly rejected this, likely stunning the two men in the room, who hadn't expected nearly such high levels of defiance from the half-English, half-Dutch man of 21 years of age. William had displayed more backbone and determination in the course of this meeting than most statesmen would do in their entire lives, but he wasn't finished. Arlington recalled his final rebuke to William in an apparently desperate appeal to get the prince to see sense. We desired him to bethink himself well, not only to remove the war out of his country, but to establish to himself a sovereignty over it, wherein both kings would secure him from abroad and at home from all dangers. He replied that he liked better the condition of Stadtholder, which they had given him, and that he believed himself obliged in conscience and honour not to prefer his interest before his obligation. These were, in Peter Gale's mind, simple words, but noble because William truly meant them, and courageous too because he spoke them in times so critical that the cynical courtier who recorded them for posterity could not believe that the prince was not bound to bethink himself. At this defiance, it was agreed that Van Buningen and his delegation be allowed back into the room, and William agreed not to mention the offer of sovereignty he had just been given, though for all intents and purposes, his stance remained the same. Perhaps Buckingham and Arlington expected the intransigent Van Buningen to remain firm, but as William's entourage also entered the room, they believed then that the prince would bow to pressures from its expectant allies in the Republic. For his part, Van Buningen found William's firmness immensely encouraging, 
and it helps that he had been as determined in the first place to resist the impossible English demands. Whether William felt he couldn't bend in front of the distinguished Dutch statesman or not, both men had the effect of putting steel in the other, as it is, of course, far easier to be defiant when you have someone else in your corner. Previously a man with an anti-orange bias, but not to the extent of De Witt's, Van Buningen had believed since the beginning that William would sell his soul to satisfy his ambition, and it is probable that as he entered the room he expected to have to argue against the prince. Yet William's continued stand effected a change in Van Buningen. He had a newfound respect for the prince, and Gale noted that the following day he travelled to the States of Holland with good conscience, having found William's position most heartening. Van Buningen was about to arrive at the States of Holland and give the advice mentioned at the end of the last episode that negotiations had to be broken off with France. That he was now convinced of this position had had much to do with the comfort he had taken from William's stand, as it did from Van Buningen's own character. He could now tell the States of Holland that there would be no capitulation, not only because it was morally and patriotically wrong, but because their stadtholder was firmly against it. These points, as we saw, had a rousing effect on the states of Holland. On the 7th of July, he would make his speech to the deputies of that province, and by the time it was finished, it was decided that they would stand with their stadtholder and they would stand against the invasion. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Which threatened to destroy them. The month of July in Dutch domestic life continued much like this meeting on the 5th of July had done. Arlington and Buckingham stayed behind for the remainder of it and continued to disbelieve the idea that William would not seize the opportunity to throw his lot in with the invader in return for the guarantee of his sovereignty. On the 9th of July he was offered a de facto kingship over what remained of the provinces, if he would only sign a document which compelled him to pressure the States General to accept whatever Charles and Louis wanted as their prizes. Arlington made it clear that there was no other way to restore peace to his unhappy country but still William held. 
Charles's agents then made a concerted diplomatic move against the province of Zealand, and its officials were divided as the French breakthrough still seemed possible, but urged to look to their elected stadtholder, they found a firmness in William which seemed to spur them forwards. Zealand, as Holland had done, placed itself in the arms of their stadtholder, and didn't take the easy way out by jumping into the arms of the foreign power. The offer on the 9th of July had been brought by three messengers, sent explicitly by the envoys to persuade William in person if the document failed to do so. William, as Peter Gale noted, virtually ignored these three men and instead set to writing his own letter to Buckingham and Arlington, asking why he had not heard from them in person and why he had yet to hear of their efforts in pressuring Louis to see reason. Tensions ran higher at this meeting. William reasoned he could not betray his oath as stadtholder to uphold the integrity of the Republic, to which one of the envoys boldly replied that William already broke the oath he took six months earlier, when he had then promised under the conditions of the Perpetual Edict to never accept the office of stadtholder. To this, after swallowing the insult, in Gale's words, William answered icily that he would be willing to see if the States General would free him from this oath as they had freed him from the previous one. The message was clear, domestic affairs were one thing, but William was bound to the state of his birth by an oath he could not and would not seek the reversal of. The States General, spirited as they were by their impressive and apparently heaven-sent stadtholder, would never dream of releasing him from his oath, and William, of course, had no real intention of asking for such measures. A week later, on the 17th of July, the envoys returned, this time with news of the significant Treaty of Heeswick, which Charles and Louis signed on the 16th of July, 1672. Within that treaty, both monarchs agreed not to make a separate peace with the Dutch. Louis reiterated all of his unacceptable demands, and Charles cranked his up a notch, demanding critical Dutch ports, on top of even larger war indemnities than before. News of these terms were handed to the prince, complete with a warning to avoid from trying to stir up trouble between the two cousins. Having handed them in, it was agreed that William would give his answer by the 20th of July, though they noted his unwillingness to open the document at all. Feeling their work was done, the envoys returned to the next part of their mission. On the 19th of July, they reached the headquarters of the governor of the Spanish Netherlands and offered him a deal as well. This governor in question, the Count of Monterey, and a man we'll familiarise ourselves with in future episodes, was himself a firm and determined man, and in him the English found yet another resilient enemy. Monterey, for his part, had resisted weeks of Anglo-French threats and pressures, and sent to the Dutch far in excess of what he was allowed to, as per the terms of the Spanish-Dutch Treaty, which was soon to be invoked. Sior Boxer, author of the article Some Second Thoughts on the Third Anglo-Dutch War, wrote on Monterey that, The Count of Monterey, Governor-General of the Spanish Netherlands, and an exceptionally active and enterprising man, sent what help he could in the way of men and supplies, over and above what he was authorised to do by the government at Madrid. Although Spain was then in the throes of one of the worst economic crises in her history, the Queen Regent and her advisers displayed remarkable courage in their efforts to help the Dutch, rejecting French and English threats and blandishments alike. The envoys of El Rey Catolico at Vienna and Rome actively canvassed support for the hard-pressed Calvinist Dutch Republic. No sooner had the war begun than the Spanish ambassador in London, laid public wagers that the French fleet would leave the English in the lurch on the day of battle, infuriating those Englishmen that he met. 
Monterey benefited from an underrated fact of the era, and that was the availability of information through the very well-researched and publicly popular gazettes and weekly papers in both the Netherlands and England. In the case of both belligerents, facts and figures were provided which shed light on everything from the popular feeling to the course of the war. The Dutch periodical, the Sincere Harlem Current, which provided us with a brilliant opening quote for the previous episode on the war, boasted of correspondence in London, Paris, Madrid and Vienna, as well as the Netherlands itself. While it may sound odd that these early journalists were granted permission to move among the warring states, a shut-off of either traded materials or freely moving peoples was not properly affected until mid-1673, and even then journalists and their correspondents still found ways to slip by. It was thus considered perfectly normal for the regular flow of news of the war to continue unabated even as the war raged and interrupted normal trade. London correspondents for the aforementioned Harlem paper reported on detailed popular actions and opinions, while alternatively Dutch correspondents for the London Gazette, a pro-government paper and the only true English newspaper of the age, reported their own take on how the depressed and harried Dutch were dealing with the situation, and regularly insisted that the war was quite popular in England, I'll have you know. There was by no means a propaganda or even paper war during this time, but the basic bones of the media were being set at this stage, and their accuracy, particularly in the Dutch case, was remarkable. As the Dutch sat in his local coffee house, he could be privy to detailed and accurate reports of Admiral de Ruyter's naval escapades, and he was able to learn of the desertions of both French and Dutch soldiers alike, as well as, of course, main events like William's ascension to the Stadtholdership and the initial declarations of war. Thus the people were remarkably well informed, and though England could only read the government-approved reports of how the war was going, one report of the London Gazette insisted that the war was very popular, only to complain in the same issue of the lack of patriotism in the country, which was evident from the shortage of recruits, accompanied of course by a royal proclamation pressing young men into naval service. So the 17th century European peoples by this point had a fairly accurate idea of what was going on. But back to the situation in the Republic. With Monterey's refusal to bow to Anglo-French demands, he actually increased his support of the Dutch and prepared Madrid to attack France within a few months. Meanwhile, the envoys had returned to William on the 20th of July for his answer. William again refused and expressed his indignation at the unrealistic Anglo-French stance in the face of the deepening military crisis that both sides faced in their invasions, though the situation was by no means favourable to the Dutch either. In the event, with the English envoys unwilling to return to Buckingham and Arlington in the French camp without significant news of William's acquiescence, they sent one of their men to meet with their French counterparts elsewhere in an effort to get Louis to moderate his demands and make them more palatable to William. Louis, for his part, hadn't yet seen the worst effects of the Dutch opening of the sluices, and his forces hadn't yet been blocked from continuing their advance as fully as they would be, though he had heard disconcerting reports that the Dutch had opened the sluices and that seawater reigned supreme. The run of French successes in capturing Dutch fortresses still hadn't stopped, though so Louis refused to stand down, and he saw no reason to accommodate the prince. Furthermore, the Sun King claimed he was planning to return home from the military life by the end of the month, and advised the English envoys to do the same, let William come to them, cap in hand, if he wanted them to come to peace. 
The envoys, despondent, returned to their masters Buckingham and Arlington, who of course blamed them for their failures, but Van Buningen now joined the English in their camp with the envoys. Instructed to present the situation of the Republic to the Englishmen and clarify the conditions of peace once and for all, Van Buningen did his best on the 25th of July, but neither man would listen. Compelling them to see Louis as their enemy rather than the weaker Dutch, Van Buningen insisted that in the interest of the balance of power and of the force of history, England needed to throw its lot in with the Dutch Republic. Still, Arlington and Buckingham were stubborn though. Frustrated and determined to leave an impression upon them, Van Buningen parted with the defiant remark that if the Republic fell, England wouldn't last for three years against France. It was a remark which greatly irritated those Englishmen present in Gale's words, but it didn't achieve much else. The diplomacy had plainly failed, as Van Buningen well understood. With negotiations no longer of any use, this Dutchman would turn his attention to widening the war to the Republic's benefit, starting with Spain. As rousing and inspirational as the story of Dutch resistance, not to mention William's example, was to posterity, I'd be misrepresenting the situation of 1672 of the Rampyar if I fail to mention a few key points, some of which overlap and even contradict the bold stand that William had already made, but all of which are understandable in the circumstances of the era. For starters, William was motivated by his total opposition to Louis XIV's France. To save his country from becoming a French vassal state, he was willing to do quite literally anything. No doubt William hoped that the panic of the Dutch people would die down after the sluices were released, and the French invasion slowed somewhat, but the commonality simply changed their tune from riots of panic to riots of rage. Across major towns in Zealand and Holland, buoyed by their new stadtholders' promotion and presence, the people agitated for sweeping punishments for the treacherous regents, while the crimes of these regents, led of course by the treasonous De Witt brothers, were publicised in orangist pamphlets, which honestly have to be read to be believed. Claims as sweeping as Charles having the interests of the Dutch at heart, to De Witt attempting to launch a war on England alongside France in violation of the Triple Alliance, to the repeated claim that Johann De Witt had a secret fund in Venice which he used to perpetrate his terrible schemes, all made the rounds. When De Witt appealed to William to tell the people the truth and go some way towards clearing his name, William replied that his family too had been the subject of unfavourable press in the past, but that he was sure De Witt's record would speak for itself. Hardly a resounding vote of confidence, which by this point De Witt badly needed. The real tragedy of the Rampyar was that for all his courage and bravery, William's goal of ridding the country of the French was aided, he believed, by amassing as much power for himself as possible. It seemed as though this could be achieved by removing the most significant regions from power. Thus, Peter de Groot's name was blackened in the states of Holland for offering too much to the French in late June. De Groot didn't wait for the crazed mob to find him because of these accusations, formulated, by the way, by William himself. Peter de Groot moved his possessions and family to Antwerp, bitter to the end that his countrymen had been so blindly mistaken. William also went some way towards reducing the sheen of his own spotless character when, in an effort to bring about the rupture between France and England, he sent a letter with an English envoy to London on the 10th of August, after receiving authorisation from the States General to do so. If it helps, we should remember that William was motivated by the end goal of acquiring the power which he believed he would need to wage a total war against France more effectively. 
perhaps if William accepted that he could cooperate with the regions against France, then none of what followed would have occurred. But indeed, it was the ultimate tragedy of the divided republic that while seeking to defeat their greatest enemy yet, the Dutch citizens could not seem to cooperate and resist at the same time. We do not know whether William genuinely believed that the regents were out to hamper his powers or reduce the effect of his position. Certainly the mob provided him with a useful tool and virtually neutered the influence of any regent regime by late July. Unless accompanied by approval by the Prince of Orange, it was becoming increasingly difficult to compel the people of the Republic to do anything through any kind of official orders or acts. The propaganda and false perceptions of what was actually happening in the state had clearly taken their toll. The historical truth was that while William talked as though he would never accept a sovereignty over the Dutch Republic unless it was approved by the States General, he was willing to treat with Charles over this issue if he being sovereign was the sole issue of concern to Charles. In other words, if all that stood between an Anglo-Dutch peace was William's elevation to sovereign over the Netherlands, he was willing to consider it. Thus, he furthered his negotiations with his uncle on this basis, and he continued to intervene minimally on the issue of mob violence to keep the regents on their toes. It was clear by late July that William was not on the side of the regime, at least certainly he wasn't in DeWitt's mind, but William was by this point so in the ascendant that there was little he could do except recover from his wounds. The 10th of August letter to his uncle contained a number of striking resolutions, including the prince's sovereignty to be bestowed over the seven Dutch provinces, 400 grand to be paid as a war indemnity to Britain, and Suriname and South America to be ceded back to Britain. These list of offers, underlined by a commitment from England to make peace with the Dutch and then refrain from aiding the French any further, was one of desperation from William, as much as it was of the States General, who don't forget had authorised William to treat with his uncle through private channels, in the hope that through this avenue of diplomacy, the Anglo-French commitment to make war and peace as one could be undermined. History is mostly forgotten about the contents of this letter, and William's image in history is largely one of a resistor. The last thing I want to do is blame William for anything or to end this episode on a downer, so let me try to reason with this development. First of all, looking objectively at the situation, nothing William offered here was unreasonable, nor would these offers cripple the Republic or hamper its independence, which Charles's previous offers would have done. Second, William's efforts to attain peace with England are understandable since he believed that the main threat to the Republic came from France and that English participation was merely a distraction which must be removed if the Dutch were to have a fighting chance, particularly at sea where plans were being developed to take the fight to Paris. Third, and in light of this, this letter did not mean that William was preparing to capitulate to anyone or that the States General were authorising such a capitulation. William was utterly committed to continuing the war and bitterly waging it against the French enemy. It motivated nearly everything he did, and his concession to have himself promoted as sovereign over the Republic can be seen as the fulfilment of William's ambition as much as it can be seen as a move to please his uncle. William was determined to go to such lengths because he foresaw the great war ahead with France. We could argue that this concession was mightily convenient for William's ambitions, and you'd be right in that. But the prince had seen his uncle's own struggles with his reign, and he appreciated how unfavourably monarchs were looked upon in the Republic, not to mention the fact that William was content with the ancestral position of Stadtholder and Captain General, for the very reason that it was an ambiguous position, and it granted him a considerable level of authority and power, 
arguably more so than being a king of the Dutch actually would. Unfortunately, by offering what he did, William had gone beyond the authorization given to him by the States General. They had granted him permission to treat with his uncle, that they trusted him not to agree to anything which might compromise the constitution of the Republic was fair, but William was not necessarily guided by the constitution if ripping it up would reduce the danger to the independence of the Dutch people. If being the ill-defined sovereign, likely in Charles's pocket, was the price to be paid for peace, then William would pay it. Fortunately for the Dutch and for William's reputation at the time, Charles would refute William's offers as he believed, like Louis, that his position was far stronger than it was. Bethink yourself well, Charles wrote in reply on the 12th of August. What will become of you when the war shall be ended, if I have not a footing in that country to stand by you against the designs and machinations of those that shall find themselves thrown out of the government to which they have become accustomed? As Gale noted, nothing could have expressed more eloquently what William's sovereignty would have meant in fact. Perhaps William only realised how indebted he would be to his uncle once he received this letter, and Gale does agree with the consensus that William acted to relieve the pressure on his country rather than out of a sense of personal ambition, and this despite the fact that Gale is pretty much the most anti-orange a historian as you can get, and I also would tend to agree with this sentiment. The true tragedy of this correspondence was that William seems to have sensed that he had gone deeper than the States General had authorised, and, as guilty people tend to do, William dug himself deeper and began to use the mob as a tool from mid-August 1672 to agitate against his political enemies in the Regent regime, who would surely have rallied against him had they discovered the extent of these scandalous offers, whatever his intentions, that he had made to the Republic's enemy. In the next episode, we'll see how this policy reached its logical, horrific and profoundly tragic conclusion. Before we get out of here, I think it's only fair to list off the patrons for this podcast. Right, so, the patrons for this week, starting from the 3rd of March, are Gary G, Embassy Intern, John S, Diplomat, Anto W, Attaché, Kaylin C, Diplomat, Dillo C, Embassy Intern, Daniel P, Diplomat, Andrew M, Diplomat, Luke F, Diplomat, Lawrence C, Diplomat, Brendan G, Envoy Extraordinaire, Romy, Diplomat, and David P, Diplomat. Alrighty guys, that's gonna do it for this week. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you all very soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.